0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics, Part Fourteen: Science. This is the second. Of three objections I'll be considering to Christianity, and it centers on the idea that our culture pits science and faith against each other, as if they've been at war for centuries. However, the truth is that faith actually gave birth to science. In this lecture, you'll learn about some of the main science objections that skeptics bring against Christianity, and some ways to respond to them Once again, as generally is the case in this course, I'm only able to scratch the surface on these issues, but at least it is a start to get you thinking about how to respond and how to think about these sorts of objections. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Part 14 of Apologetics, a lecture on science. If God exists, why isn't his existence obvious, right? Why is there no scientific test you can perform to prove God's existence? And there's a famous atheist, Have, has any of you ever heard of Bertrand Russell? Yeah. No. He's a famous atheist, British atheist. If Bertrand Russell found out there was a God and that, you know, he came before him on Judgment Day, Bertrand Russell says he would ask, Sir, why did you not give me better evidence? And so basically Bertrand Russell would complain on the day of judgment that God didn't make it clear enough. And so the question is, you know, why in the world is it like that? And there's a scripture here that Dembski brings up in his book, Isaiah 45, 15. It's just like a little snippet, but it says, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Anybody ever see that movie, Expelled? Yes. What was that guy's name? Ben Stein? He's the one that said Bueller, Bueller, originally. Anyhow. No intelligence allowed. Yeah, Expelled, no intelligence allowed. But there was the... uh... Okay, so anyhow, in that interview with that gentleman, I don't remember his name, but uh, Berlinski, wasn't it? He talks about the hiddenness of God. And so the idea is that God, if God makes it so obvious, then people will be coerced into believing in him. And uh, so God might have his reasons for hiddenness. There's a balance. You know, he needs to make it clear enough so that if you're looking for him, you find him, but hidden enough so that people are free to disbelieve. And that's the only way to have true freedom. That's basically Densky's point, is that God is hidden enough not to coerce belief. Okay? God is not interested in forcing people to believe in him or to do what he wants them to do. Uh, I think God loves everybody and wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth but um, he resp- he, the way he set it up, he respects people's right to say no. So I want to talk about uh, just dispel one of these myths right off the bat. Believing in God is unscientific. That's a, an idea that some people have, right? Believing in God is unscientific, okay? Well, it turns out That is exactly the other way around. Belief in God is what led to science in the first place. And this is not a matter of my opinion or a logical argument. This is a fact of history. This is a fact of history. If you look at the founders of the various branches of science in the past, you will discover that they also believed in God and that they sought to discover laws scientific laws, because they believe God was the creator of an ordered universe. And they believe that the external world cohered with the internal world of their minds such that they could perform experiments and get reliable access to God's laws. And so the whole search for God's laws came about because people believed in God in the first place, and that's what gave birth to the scientific revolution. I don't think I have a uh, slide of this. I surely have it in my lecture notes. This is Nicholas Copernicus who was a mathematician. He was a mathematician and astronomer. He formulated the heliocentric model of the universe, Copernican revolution, so-called. Quoted many times by atheists as the initiator of the scientific revolution. What did he actually say, Dan? To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend its wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate In degree, the wonderful workings of his laws, surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the most high. To whom ignorance can't be more grateful than knowledge. Understanding the mighty works of God is a mode of worship. Copernicus conceived of science as worship. That's a little different than the way we hear it today, right? (laughs) <laughs> but that makes sense, right? God's not going to commend ignorance over knowledge. God doesn't want us, you know, there's no virtue in being dumb or being unaware of something. And so what Copernicus is saying is, you know, this is, this is something that's pleasing to God. This is Johannes Kepler, who was a German mathematician and astronomer that discovered the laws of planetary motion. Talon, what did he say? Those laws are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. Right. So he believed that the scientific laws, the natural laws, are within the grasp of the human mind and, and that's related to the fact that God wanted us to recognize them. God wanted us to discover his laws in nature. Right. So that's Johannes Kepler. This is like a who's who list of ancient scientists. Lord William Kelvin got a sweet prefix on his name. Josiah, could you read that one? If you study science deep enough and long enough, it will force you to believe in (laughs) God. Could you imagine a scientist saying that? And yet that's how he he felt. Kelvin is the guy who invented the uh, comic strip, right? No, 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 no. That's not. That's Calvin. This is Kelvin. Kelvin is the guy that worked on thermodynamics, who came up with the concept of absolute zero and who is a degree. Degree is Kelvin, right? That's pretty big. This is Sir Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton is like one of the biggest Christians of the last 500 years. Also was a biblical Unitarian and did more on theology than he did on science and nobody recognized it. Everybody just thinks of him as a scientist. Uh, He was big into physics. Yeah. And math, De Principia. Go ahead, Brooke. In the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. He must have been studying thumbs or something. He must have been looking at his hand. He's like, wow, that's really good design. I mean, he was like an inventor and understood machines a little bit. You know, he's like, huh, look at that. Look at what. You know, maybe he was playing thumb wars with somebody. (laughs) What else we got? I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the Word of God, written by those who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. This is one of the finest mathematicians and physicists of his own century. So this is a myth, this idea that the Bible and science are mutually exclusive endeavors and that you can't believe in the Bible if you're a scientist or vice versa. Look at Max Planck, the Nobel Prize winning physicist considered to be the founder of quantum theory and one of the most important physicists of the 20th century, indeed of all time, invented the Planck length, which if you ever do quantum theory is significant. Mm-hmm. Alex, can you read for us? There can <laughs> never be any real opposition between religion and science, the one is the complement of the other. Every serious or reflective person realizes, I think, that the religious element in his nature must be recognized and cultivated It's all the powers of the human soul It's not by accident that the greatest thinkers of all ages were deeply religious souls. That's a huge statement. It's a massive statement by a massive scientist. And what is he saying here? He's saying there's no opposition between religion and science. They go together, they complement each other. And then this last part, right? And indeed, it is not by accident that the greatest thinkers of all ages were deeply religious souls. This is 20th century. This isn't like a million years ago. Uh, This is Nikola Tesla, who is the father of the modern electric car. Just kidding. They just named it after him. Go ahead, Jesse. (laughs) The gift of mental power comes from God, divine being, and if we concentrate our minds on that truth, we become in tune with this great power. The gift of mental power comes from God. Isn't that cool? From the guy that did all this work on electrical power. He's <laughs> like the gift of mental power comes from God. He's the one that developed AC, alternating current and electrical supply system. Thank you. Although I'm more of a fan of DC, but whatever. This is James Maxwell, James Clerk Maxwell. His equations are quite spectacular. They're not simple, but there's a whole bunch of them that describe electromagnetism. Very intelligent man. Jamie, is it your turn? Mm-hmm. Could you read for us? I have looked into most philosophical systems and I have seen that none will work without God. Science is incompetent to reason upon the creation of matter itself out of nothing. We have reached the, m- the utmost limit of our thinking facilities, uh, our faculties.
1: Faculties. And we
0: have <laughs> admitted that because matter cannot be eternal and self existent, it must have been created. Right. So, this is a scientific insight that we've had fairly recently since Hubble's Telescope and Big Bang Cosmology that matter cannot be eternal and self-existent. Therefore, Maxwell saying it must have been created. Science can't reason creation of matter itself out of nothing. He is pointing to God for that reason. So these are some, some quotes that, these are primary sources to show you from scientists themselves that they did believe in God and even a couple of them mentioned believing strongly in the Bible. I want to talk now about biblical culture. It's kind of one of Dembski's things here. The first thing I want to I want to address is the issue of chronological snobbery. Then I want to talk about charitable reading, <laughs> and then uh, phenomenological language. All right. So chronological snobbery is thinking you're better than people who lived a long time ago and it's rampant in our age. People generally think that those who lived before pick your invention. Electricity, the car, phones, the internet are obsolete. People who lived back then were clueless. They were out of touch and that we are somehow smarter or more capable than they were. People think that about old people today. Old people don't feel that way. (laughs) They know better. (laughs) <laughs> They've been around long enough to know better, because when they were young, they thought the old people were out of touch and clueless. Among youth, there there tend to be that current. And in our culture in particular, our culture as a whole, I mean, think about this, just to make it specific and concrete. How do you feel about somebody who lived in the year 1075? Well, right? As soon as I throw a year out there, you're like, 1075? Man, that's smack dab in the dark ages. We even use the phrase <clears throat> dark ages to describe these primitive savages who couldn't figure out that you're supposed to wash your hands or that rats carried the plague or that bleeding yourself out the bad blood was a bad idea, right? Don't we, in a sense, feel superior to somebody in 1075? They're extremely primitive. They don't understand electricity, internal combustion. Did you know that they didn't even have the steam engine in 1075? These people must have been idiots! It's so easy to think that, or even just to have a little subversive, subtle amount of that. These peasants, right? Were they even literate in the year 1075? So we have, a snot, we have a little bit of snobbery about literacy, too. We look at the culture of Jesus, right? Where most people, especially in the Roman Empire, most people couldn't read. How do you feel about a grown person who can't read? You feel like there's something wrong, right? Like, what? Our system failed you. (laughs) Yeah, our system failed you. You were the child that got left behind, right? No child left behind, except for this guy over here. He can't read. You know, we assume there's something wrong with that person. We would say, how do you even function? Right? Whereas in the ancient world, most people couldn't read, and it wasn't a big deal. They didn't have a textual society. They had an oral society. And so, anyhow... The person in 1075 I'm thinking of is a chap named Anselm and he's the guy that invented the ontological argument that sends our minds spinning and he conceived of it in the first place. The whole greatest conceivable being, the idea exists in your mind and not in reality and so on. He's the one that's sitting there meditating and coming up with that in the year 1075. I tell you what, if you read even someone from the 1800s you will struggle to understand their sentences because their sentences are so long and they use so many different English words rather than just the few that we are used to using that it's hard to grasp. Forget reading Paul in the original Greek where a sentence can go for a chapter or reading Plato which I had to do for one of my Greek classes where it was like banging my head against a brick wall just to spend hours to get one sentence. You look up every word in the sentence, you've got all of the words, you know what they all mean in English and you still have no idea what the sentence says. Because he just, he thought and he wrote on a level that is beyond most of us, what we can handle without hours and hours of effort, right? And so I don't think we need to say we're getting smarter and they were all dumb back then, right? But that's what people do with the Bible, isn't it? We have all our technology and our communications and our scientific discoveries and everything else. We're like, oh, these stupid people. Richard Dawkins famously calls Uh, No, Sam Harris, he's like, you're going to take the morals of a Bronze Age civilization as your guide in our day and time. I think we can improve upon that. right? There's this subtle sense of chronological snobbery, like they were a long time ago, therefore they were dumb. Look, your intelligence and what you know are two different things. Most of what you know you did not figure out. Most of what you know got downloaded into your brain by a public system or a homeschooling system that already figured it out. We stand on the shoulders of other people and we have this accumulated knowledge going back to all these scientists that all believed in God, right? And we do well to remember that. So that's my little rant. This could be a whole sermon. And what do we do with our accumulated knowledges? We rot our brains with Netflix binges and video game nonsense and... Social media, and what do we do? We don't even use the information age to find out answers. When's the last time you sat down? I mean, you do this in college typically, but like sit down and really meditate on the big questions. That's my spiel on chronological snobbery. Second point under biblical culture is that we need to have a charitable reading, and that goes for anything. If you're going to read an atheist book, don't read it in a way that is so hyper skeptical that you're dying to prove the guy's a moron. Right? I mean, assume the guy is relatively intelligent and that he makes good points. You disagree with him, but you need to find the reasons and do business with them. What people do is they'll look at a verse. Here's a classic. There are lots of these skeptic websites, by the way. They'll look at a verse in the Bible, Proverbs 26, 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. And they're like, look at the next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. Do you see the difference? So in verse four, it says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Verse five, answer a fool according to his folly. Right? A a skeptic will read the Bible and, and they won't give it a charitable reading. They won't give it the benefit of the doubt. And they'll be like, what kind of an idiot would believe in Proverbs? These Christians are morons. They have a delusion of God. I'm just kind of like spouting out a little bit of the new atheist slogans here. Dumb, do they think the writer was to like on the very next line, like just completely forget? Right, 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 right. Christians are so dumb that they don't detect a contradiction within one verse. Right. That's the that's the line we hear. Right. But in reality, sometimes it's good to answer a fool according to his folly, so you set him in his place. And other times, if you respond in like manner, you become sucked into that situation yourself. There's no problem here. You give it a charitable reading and suddenly it's like, oh I guess this is not a hard and fast contradiction. It's a book of wisdom. It's a collection of proverbs. That's what they are. That's the way proverbs function. They're generalities that generally work yeah, you can find exceptions to any of the Proverbs, probably. You need to give the Bible a charitable reading. All right, and then the last one is phenomenological language. Let me ask, and I'll just, I'll just ask you one question. Do you believe the sun rises? Brooks says yes. No. 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 Let me ask you this. Do you believe in sunsets? No. Of course you believe in sunsets. But is a sunset the sun setting? Of course it is. Have you never been outside in the evening and watched the sun set? Mm -hmm. It does set. Come on. Your mindset of the universe is colored by the education you've received, which to a large degree is impacted by people who have gone to outer space. Right? And so when you think of the Earth, if I say to you, think of the Earth in your mind right now, I can almost guarantee I know what you're thinking. Because there's a famous picture that a NASA astronaut took, and it's used everywhere all the time, in all of our textbooks and in all of our media, and it's this picture of the Earth. Uh, it's called Earthrise, and it's a picture taken from the moon of the Earth, and it's this blue, beautiful marble, right? When I say picture of the Earth, that's what you think of in the ancient times they say picture the earth, what do they picture? (laughs) A field of wheat. (laughs) (laughs) My point and the point Dembski and many others have made on phenomenological language is that it's not wrong to say the sun rises. It's not wrong to say the sun sets because when you take it from the perspective of an observer on earth observing the phenomenon, that's what it is. From the perspective of Earth, the sun does rise. And from the perspective of Earth, the sun does set. And that's where we are, people. We are on Earth. And so that's the, that's the Bible's standard default when it describes any kind of phenomena, is to describe it from the perspective of the Earth. Now, a skeptic comes along and says, oh, look at these morons. They think the sun rises. Be like, the last time I checked my weather app in the year 2015 with the most sophisticated meteorological network the earth is probably ever seen, it still says sunrise and sunset on my phone, right? Because we know what that means, right? And we, of course, we know that it's the earth is really rotating, but it doesn't change the fact that we perceive it as the sunrise and the, and the sun setting, okay? That's phenomenological language. Feel free to try that out on your uh, friends and see if you can dominate them and scrabble with it. All right. One of the other issues that goes against biblical culture is the worldview of naturalism. We've talked about this a lot. We called it the atheist worldview, but it's the idea that the world is a closed system. There are no gods or spirits or external agents of any kind beyond the physical realm. And here's the bottom line. If you accept naturalism as your worldview, as opposed to the biblical culture, which is theism, every time you see a miracle in the Bible, what are you going to do? You're either going to try to come up with an explanation or you're going to laugh hysterically. (laughs) Water into wine. You can't turn water into wine. These primitive people, back to the chronological snobbery, these primitive people didn't realize that after three days you can't rise from the dead. What morons? That's chronological snobbery combined with the worldview of naturalism but look ladies and gentlemen, if We can demonstrate God's existence, which I think I gave you like eight arguments for. If we can demonstrate God's existence, then is it hard for God to turn water into wine? He turned nothing into light. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think turning nothing into light or making a universe is probably harder than taking water and adjusting the molecules so that it's some really quality wine, such that the guy who drank it was like save the good stuff for the end. Nice. Weddings don't normally do that, right? And so naturalism is really the battlefield. Many times when we talk about biblical criticism or science versus God stuff, and again, how do you defeat naturalism? What you do is you show them the reasons why we believe in God. Because as soon as you can establish God's um, Existence—you've defeated naturalism. As soon as you've defeated naturalism, the possibility of miracles seems suddenly rational, right? Because there's a there's a rational God, as opposed to ridiculous. All right, just a, a few more comments here, and then we'll. Uh, I was rather industrious when I prepared this lecture. I, I have a lot to say, apparently. My first degree is in science. I just love science. Sometimes people will say things like, there's no way that there could be divine intervention because it would suspend the laws of physics. I don't. Know, has anybody ever heard that as a criticism? Maybe, maybe not. People will say, Oh, there's no way you can defy the laws of nature. It just doesn't make sense. Well, Dembski has a good point on this. He's, he's like, look, it's not that God is suspending the laws of nature any more than it is when... catch this. You ready? Jesse just intervened the laws of physics no he didn't did I just suspend the laws of physics by stopping this marker from hitting the ground I did not suspend the laws of physics I intervened as an agent as someone who has a will and who can stop things look if you're if, if suddenly the table shakes and somebody's cup is falling and they and they grab it to steady it that's not to say they've defied gravity what they've done is they've just intervened right All the physical laws are still functioning, right? And so if God intervenes, it doesn't even necessarily mean that he has suspended the physical laws. He might just be holding up the feet of Jesus somehow while he's walking on the water. I don't know how he did it, but it's certainly possible that he intervenes. It's not that Jesus' density had to be lower than the density of one, which is the density of water, right? It could be that God intervened somehow just as well. All right, and so another side point, this is free, no charge for this one, is that people will typically say you believe in God because you can't explain something. The God of the gaps, it's a God of the gaps critique, and it goes something like this. You don't know what started the universe, therefore you hypothesize God started the universe. Right? And so, what they accuse us of is inventing a god because we're too lazy to scientifically engage in the real question. You don't understand how evolution works, therefore, you posit a god to start it all. Right? Yeah. We could claim the same thing for them. You don't understand how God works, so you make evolution to try to explain it away. It's the same, it's a circular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are our arguments for God's existence? What are the three main kinds of arguments for God's existence? Ontological? Ontological? Wait, hold on. The ontological argument, does it depend on not knowing something? No. No, it doesn't. The greatest conceivable being It's a mental experiment and then it's, it's basically an argument from existence being greater than an idea that doesn't also exist. There's no gaps there that that argument is trying to fill. What are the other two kinds of arguments? Cosmological. Cosmological. argument. That one says, all right, you have a universe. The universe has a beginning, right? The universe has a beginning. You don't realize how big of a statement that is. The universe is not just the planets in our solar system or our galaxy or all the galaxies combined. The universe is everything physical all energy and time itself, all right? The universe is massive as a concept. In the Big Bang way of thinking of it, all of the matter and the energy that exists is compressed into an infinitesimally small singularity of infinite density, right? So if I ask you the question, what's outside of that, right? There is nothing outside of it. That's everything squished into one, right? And so if that's the universe, and if that's anything to do with the actual model of how it all started, right? Now you run through the cosmological argument. Everything that has a beginning has a cause of its beginning. The universe has a beginning. This is science that told us this. I mean, Genesis had that idea a long time ago as well, Genesis 1-1, but it's science that tells us this as well, right? Everything has a beginning has a cause, the universe has a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. That cause can either be internal or external, right? Either the universe caused itself to begin or something supernatural, something above the universe, something outside of the universe caused it. Now why can't the universe cause itself to begin? Because it doesn't exist until it begins. Right? You can't cause yourself to come into existence because you don't exist yet to cause anything. Right? It's a contradiction. There's no way anything can cause itself to begin, ever. It's logically impossible. Right? It's like a hot ice cube, a square circle, or a married bachelor. They do not, it's just a contradiction. You can't, you, they don't exist. Right? God can't make them exist. They're contradictory as an idea. Alright? So we're stuck with an external reason. So the cosmological argument is proving an external source for the beginning of the universe. It's not based on ignorance. It's not based on a gap, right? And then you have the teleological argument, which is all those arguments about order and design, whether the hummingbird or this simple cell, I love saying that because cells are so complicated, or fine-tuning, right? These kinds of arguments are based on observing a certain level of order and design, and we make a design inference and say, because these are so complicated and well done, we infer that there's a brilliant designer behind them. It's not a lack of knowledge that's generating, driving all these arguments for God's existence. So this is just a fallacy, I would argue, uh, to say that we generate our belief in God based on our ignorance of how things actually work. And if it were true, then you would find fewer and fewer theists over the years as scientific discoveries come out. And that's not been the trend. That's not been the trend. Theism is alive and well. Atheists are a tiny minority. They really are, from, especially from a global perspective. All right, so then three more points. You hear this frequently, especially from the new atheists, especially from Dawkins and Hitchens, uh, is that religion is bad for society. The other point is uh, evolution. (laughs) just talk about that in just five minutes, no big deal. And then age of the earth is another issue that comes up a lot in uh, science versus the Bible kind of stuff, right? So the first point, religion is bad for society. I'm going to throw some (coughs) stats at you. How many people do you think died in the Salem witch trials? Yeah, lots. But how many? Just give me a number. 643. 643. Anybody else want to go higher or lower? 4,000. 4, 4,000? 33. Yeah. 33 people? 33 people died in the Salem Witch Trials. 33. If you look at the Spanish Inquisition, do you know what that is? That's where the Catholic Church would send a professional examiner to torture you and find out if you were practicing Judaism or practicing some sort of inappropriate from their perspective belief system. The estimate on that is between five and 10,000 people that it killed, which is over two centuries. Five to 10,000, we'll take the big number. 10,000, so now, now we have at the hands of religion, 10,000 and 33 people killed, okay? Now the big one, the Crusades. The Crusades, they estimate on the very high end, they estimate the Crusades at 9 million. 9 million deaths. That's including Christian, Muslim, Jewish deaths. Do you know how long the Crusades lasted for? 220 years. So 9 million people plus 10,000 plus 33 is 9 million, 10,000, and 33 over the course of a couple hundred years. Now let's take a look at atheist regimes. Pol Pot killed 3 million. The Nazi genocide was based on social Darwinism. You ever heard of Hitler? right? We're looking at 11 to 14 million people died there. Mao Zedong in China killed 30 million. Carl Joseph Stalin, another atheist, 50 million. This is just recent history, you know what I'm saying? So I really find it hard to believe that religion is bad for society. I mean, is it worse than atheism? It seems like atheism is really bad for society. So it's like Tim Keller is very gracious when he says, let's just call it a tie. <laughs> What's wrong with society is that people, people do bad things and they're selfish and they get together and mobs act without any kind of rational explanation, right? It's really got nothing to do with belief in God or not belief in God. How can you blame a book on killing that says, don't kill? It doesn't make any sense. Right, right, right. And your argument against the Inquisition would be those Inquisitors were not being faithful to what Jesus said, right? So we were gonna, we would call the inquisitors hypocrites. They're saying they're acting in the name of Christ, but they're really torturing and killing people because they're trying to coerce them into belief. How many people have religion saved? Not like saved, eternally saved, but you know, people in religious organizations just, that go all around the world saved. Yeah, or think of even humanitarian efforts. Right. Was it atheism that championed the abolitionist movement? Or were they Christians in England and in America? In America, the ones who had the light early were the Quakers, by the way, Society of Friends. They figured out, yeah. Could you go over the uh, numbers of uh, Pol Pot? Pol Pot was three million. The uh, Nazis were 11 to 14 million. And they believed in social Darwinism. They believed the strongest. Uh, They believed in the Aryan race, the whole idea of evolution, producing a better human race. They killed off handicapped people, gypsies and Jews and homosexuals because they believed they were all inferior. It was Darwinism in a political practice and then Mao Zedong was 30 million, Karl Joseph Stalin was 50 million. There are lots of good books that bring up these points if you read the responders to the New Atheist Movement. The, the New Atheist Movement has it seems like it's almost lost all its steam. Nobody really even talks about it anymore. So I'm not gonna talk about it either. No sense in resurrecting it. All right, the, the evolution uh, subject and then the age of the earth. Actually, I'm really interested in watching the Christopher Hitchens versus William Lane Craig debate. Mm-hmm. I hadn't realized that it was published on YouTube finally. And when it first came out, you know, it was like you had to pay to see it. And I was like, Yeah I don't know about that. But now it's, now it's free on uh, YouTube, so. Christopher Hitchens, he's the, yeah, he's dead. He's the best atheist in my opinion. He's my favorite atheist. He, he, because he's so he's so vituperative. You know that word? He's not really happy to say God doesn't exist. He'd rather call God like an evil genocidal maniac. You know what I mean? So like if God does exist, he's evil and he's an anti-theist. And So he makes just such a great enemy. Uh, where some of these guys are, they're just not as effective at... So he goes oh, he goes right for the jugular. He's like, his book is called God is Not Great. How religion poisons everything, right? And so, and he attacks Christianity, Islam, I mean, you name it, he attacks it. And then he got cancer and he died, like all within a year. It was just really sudden. And Christians were praying for him, that God would heal him. And he, he was like, all right, well, you could pray for me if you want. <laughs> but, you know, he held his atheism to the end, so far as I know. Anyhow, that's nothing to do with anything. Evolution, theistic evolution, Have you heard of that before? Theistic evolution is the idea that God used evolution to generate all the different species, including humans. Um, I don't personally hold to that view, but it is a view that a lot of Christians do hold, so you should be aware that that is obviously an option. I don't know really how you'd work that with the Bible. You know, you might have to take more of a uh, liberal view of the Bible. I'm not really sure. But anyhow, evolution is defined as variation of species, the generation of complexity, through genetic mutation and natural selection, right? Positive genetic mutation and natural selection. The two main points that, as a lot of Christian scientists have studied evolution, that they want to ask and come back on relate to spontaneous generation and irreducible complexity, right? Right? Those are good words, right? Irreducible complexity. You can really impress people with that one. You should never learn anything to impress people. The most intolerable people are the people that are always trying to impress people. I'm I'm joking when I say you should impress people with this stuff. <coughs> it's not always clear when I'm joking, I realize that. So all right, so spontaneous generation is the idea that life generates on its own. There's a law, it's called the law of abiogenesis that says life comes only from life. In everything we know, in every experiment ever done, that is the way it is. Life comes only from life, abiogenesis is another big word for you, just, I'm just rolling with them today. Yeah, well, A is not, bio is life, and the genesis is begin. You don't have things spontaneously generate, in other words. And so that is the most difficult issue for evolution, and that's what they bring out in that Expelled movie. And it's because DNA, RNA, the simple cell of even the most basic bacterium requires an incredible amount of complexity, and to have all these things exist all at the same time in some sort of primordial soup where things are, there's, there's no agent organizing things. So things are just sort of floating around in the slime, right? And so how are you going to get, let's see, 100,000 amino acids to instantiate at the same time, in the same place, and form that crazy double helix all without any kind of force winding it up? And you know, it's like crazy small too. It's not like you can like, form that shape around like a twig or something over time. You know, it's like really, really tiny. To have anything like a simple cell generate from the primordial soup is just infinitesimally unlikely. Even if you give it four and a half billion years, even if you give it 15 billion years, even if you gave it a trillion years, it's still infinitesimally unlikely. I mean, it is so, it's so hard to get over that hurdle. But once you get over that hurdle and you can have some sort of life, it's not at all clear how you get from a simple form of life, like say a banana, to a complicated form of life, like a monkey, right? You have bananas, right? What do bananas do? Nothing. They, eat, they, grow. they grow. I mean they're very limited in what they do. They, they rot, grow. You know, they change color, they put out leaves, but the monkey, there's a banana right there, but the monkey, what does the monkey do? The monkey can throw stuff at you, you know, the monkeys can think and everything else. I mean, if you asked anybody before this whole Darwinist uh, revolution took over, do you think monkeys come from bananas? Everyone would laugh, even when I say it like that, it (laughs) sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's what they actually believe that complicated life came from simpler life. And if you trace it all the way back, you came from the banana too. Or even something simpler than a banana. An amoeba, right? Amoebas to apes. I don't know, it just seems absolutely unlikely. But the issue of irreducible complexity is that there are certain systems that, there are systems that do not provide any advantage unless all of the parts are assembled and functioning. That's how I would define irreducible complexity. So if you have a system that does not provide any advantage, unless all the parts are assembled and functioning, you have irreducible complexity. And that's the example of the mousetrap. A mousetrap is an irreducibly complex system because if you take one part out of it, it doesn't catch any mice. Okay. Think of the human eye. Let's simplify thinking about the eye to just a few elements. Okay. Let's simplify, just for the sake of illustration. You have the eyeball. You have a protruded brow ridge. (laughs) The bone structure underneath it, like, yeah, yeah, around the socket. Yeah, and and some of the boys have been hit here. I've been hit here quite a few times, especially by my kids. I've caught your elbow right here, or is it, is it bruised now? It might even be still bruised from that elbow you threw me in basketball. We have a bone structure around our eyes that make it so that our eyes don't go splat when we, we hit things with our head, or things hit our heads, right? So you need to have a brow ridge, you need to have an eyeball, you need to have an eyelid, you need to have that cable that connects to the computer, right, what do you call that? Nerve. Optic, nerve. Optic nerve. And you need to have some sort of brain processor. might not have to be like a full brain, but it has to be at least part of the brain that processes the image and reflects it to the person, the observer, right? Even with just these elements here, it's not at all clear how evolutionarily speaking this system could develop. You know, let's just say you started with an eyeball, right? And the eyeball was growing on your head, but there wasn't the the socket yet for it. It was just sort of growing there. There was a genetic mutation. Some genes got shuffled around and they just started growing an eyeball, like say, say like right here. What advantage would that eyeball give that species such that it would reproduce more than any other species? Oh my goodness, an eyeball is a great disadvantage, right? Because it's a soft, vulnerable spot right eyeballs are terrible unless they're protected oh and then there's one other system that goes in with the eyelid right your tear ducts let's say you had all of this and you had no tear ducts how long would your eyeballs last (laughs) you want to test it out just don't blink for the rest of this lecture and we'll see how you do so even if you had this whole system but you don't have the brow ridge and you're in a survival of the fittest kind of mode, people are going to get their eyeballs knocked out, right? If you have all this system but not the cable that connects it to your computer, it does you literally no good, right? And so you have irreducibly complex systems. You know, uh, the classic example is the bacterial flagellum, which is this little outboard motor tail thing that transports the uh, bacterial around where it needs to go. So you have these systems, you take away one thing, let's, t- let's keep all that, but we'll just take away this part. What kind of advantage would that give this, the species? Nothing, right? If, if, you, if you take away the tear ducts, what good is an eyeball if you can't see? It's a vulnerability if you can't see. If you can see, it's a great help, but you need all of the parts in order for vision to function properly. So that's the concept of irreducible complexity. The guy who came up with the term and wrote the book on it called Darwin's Black Box is Michael Behe. So if you are interested in this, read his book. Another guy that talks about intelligent design and uh, he wrote a book called The Signature in the Cell is uh, Stephen Myers. And there, there are many others as well, yeah. Well you have to generate new data, right, because a simple little slimy amoeba does not contain enough complexity in its DNA to code a banana, much less a monkey, right? So how are you going to get that extra information? By making mistakes reproducing? Just doesn't seem like a a sufficient system or uh, mechanism means by which to do that. Look, if you copy, let's say uh, Dan decides he wants to copy his notes into a different notebook, right? He copies his notes. Is he going to get new information by copying notes? Then he copies it again, and then he copies it again, and then he copies it. By copying it more times, that doesn't add new information. That's what reproduction is, is copying and copying and copying the DNA. And the idea is that if you make a mistake in the DNA, you shuffle the genes a little bit, you'll get a new slight advantage. And then that organism will survive better, reproduce more, and eventually it will have another slight mutation that makes a slight advantage, right, but it just seems a bit improbable, and that's my very understated way of saying it, yeah. I don't know, I've never double-checked on the guy's claims, that he's a professor, and he's, this was still a study, um, I think it's on Netflix, there's a series called um, um, Animals That Defy Evolution, where he used to be an evolutionary teacher, someone shouts on the Bible, he looked into it, and then, and then he, he's a Christian now, and he's like, there's a lot of animals that that defy, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly an area to consider. If evolution is true, I think I want to see much more compelling evidence. I mean, the, the evidence I remember being shown was like that beetle that used to fly. No, not a bomb deer beetle, but that's an irreducibly complex beetle because you don't want to have like explodable feces that's not completely functioning because it might cause problems. I don't know if it's feces or what it is, but it's, it's some sort of excrement that explodes, which is pretty cool. Yeah. No, but The example I always think of is that beetle on the island. You guys didn't study this? What? Yeah, the winged beetle. Yeah, and then uh, on the island, the wind would carry the, the winged ones off. And so there was a genetic mutation where they lost their wings. And then they thrived on the island because they had gone through this evolution. Well, it's like they lost information. They don't have wings anymore. How is that? I mean, it's better for that particular environment, but it's not an example of evolution. <laughs> I was actually going back. Yeah, it's de evolution, right? The idea is that uh, the evolution can help you in a particular situation, but if you were to put that animal back into a population that was not you know, de evolved, it would die off. Mm-hmm. Like a, a virus that is immune to certain drugs. Like, if those drugs weren't present, and you put them back into a population of bacteria they wouldn't be able to reproduce as well, and they eventually die off. What do you do with the fact that uh, humans and other mammals like, I don't know, apes and I think whales have similar structures, like ball and socket joints or something like that? What, how do you explain that? How do you explain common body parts? What's the evolutionary explanation? Common ancestry, right? So that's one possibility. What's the other? (laughs) Say it in other words. If it works well. Yeah. Common designer. Designers use the same system in multiple places. Like for example, the escalator is one of the most brilliant inventions of all times. Because when it fails, it still just stares. You know what I mean? And so like when they came out with escalators, they just like put them everywhere. Why? Not because all of the designers studied under the same teacher. Because the design was good and they used it in multiple places. You know, a skateboard and a car both have four wheels. Doesn't mean that the skateboard evolved from the car four million years ago. It's just we discovered that wheels work really well, so we use wheels all over the place, right? And so if you have a common designer, then you're going to have common body parts among creations that that designer produces. Does that make sense? A couple other points in evolution. One is that vestigial organs, people believed. Uh, those are organs that don't appear to do anything. People used to believe that they were evidence of evolution. For example, your appendix. And the theory goes, when you were like you know, Neanderthal man wandering around, and you eating all kinds of like weird stuff, that appendix was doing something, but now that you evolved when you eat the big Texas Danish for dinner, I think I saw that somewhere in here in the back there, you don't need a working appendix anymore. It stops working. It's evidence of evolution. Yeah. I think it's evidence of the opposite of evolution. You had a working appendix. You might have been able to eat grass, but now you're limited to fewer food options, right? So I don't think vestigial organs are at all good evidence for evolution. They're evidence for losing functionality of organs. And a lot of times they find these organs actually do something later on. And they're like, oh, we didn't notice. When my mom was a kid, everybody had their tonsils removed. Which was just standard procedure because this way you won't get tonsillitis. Then they're like, oh, people that have their tonsils removed get sore throats more because the tonsils were blocking bacteria from getting to the esophagus. Right? And so, I don't think that's at all a good argument. On to my last point, which is the age of the Earth stuff. I don't have uh, time to get into it fully, but I did want to mention that there are these global clocks. You're familiar with radiometric dating, I presume, like uh, uranium, lead dating, and stuff like that. Global, cl- those are very isolated clocks you're measuring a sample. And they measure meteorites, too. That's how they calculate the age of the Earth, based on meteorites. It seems like that's that's a very strange way to do it. Because first of all, meteorites, by definition, are not terrestrial. They're not from Earth. So they're not going to tell you the age of the Earth. Second of all, meteorites go through this incredible heat process when they come into the atmosphere, and then they collide with the Earth. It just seems like a weird thing to use to test the age of the Earth. Anyhow, some global clocks. I, th- I thought these were pretty fascinating. One is salinization in the ocean. So you can measure the rate at which the ocean is getting saltier, and then work backwards from that, and you get to a completely unsalty ocean way before the 4.5 billion year mark. Mud on the sea floor. Helium in atmosphere is another one you know they can measure the rate at which helium is escaping from rocks and going into the atmosphere they can measure the rate at which helium escapes the atmosphere into space they can work it backwards and they can work it back to where there would have been no helium anymore in the atmosphere you know how long ago that was and it's again way earlier population statistics is another one so uh, you have to check this stuff out on your own. Obviously, I don't have the time to get into all of it. But population statistics, they say there were about a million people alive in the year 2000 BC. And there are epidemics and stuff like that. They estimate population statistics, working, you know, 7 billion now. They work it backwards based on what data they have. There's only a million people in 2000 BC, which is to say around 3000 BC, you basically run out of people. And that just happens to be about when the Bible says the flood was. There you go. Moon dust is another one. When they first landed on the moon, they were worried that the lander would just fall all the way through all the dust because the meteors hit the moon and it creates dust. And on the moon, there's no way to like deal with the dust. Like on our planet, we have this atmosphere. There's no atmosphere on the moon. If the moon is billions of years old, it should have much more dust on it based on current rates of dust accumulation, but it's not at all like that. And then the last one, I'll leave you to look, research it on your own, it's called polonium halos. Polonium is an element that decays very fast and they find these polonium halos, halo is like a little mark in a granite stone left when polonium decays. If granite is in a molten state, it won't record polonium halos. It'll just like transition through that process and there won't be any indication of it but if the granite solidified instantly then it would have that marker in it but you know I'm not an expert on these things I'm just giving them to you for your consideration salinization in the ocean but on the sea magnetic field decay they're all the same same sort of thing you measure the way it is today you work it backwards based on the current rate of change and you run out of whatever it is or the magnetic field gets stronger if you go back as far as 10,000 years ago the magnetic field on earth would be as strong as a star which of course is impossible. You don't have the equipment to generate that kind of magnetic field or the helium in the atmosphere uh, population statistics moon dust or polonium halos so I mean look if the earth turns out to be four and a half billion years old it's not gonna ruin my day really it's not. I still need to have an Adam and an Eve, I still need to have Genesis, I still need to have the Bible right, because that's what I'm committed to based on what we've seen already with the Bible lectures, right, I feel like there are good reasons to question it as well. I kind of hold that as an open question. I find evolution very unconvincing personally, and I think science is awesome. So that's all I have to say about that. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher, Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitudio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.